This is Paul. And this is Sheila. And we're here to talk about the very first episode at long last of CBS All Access's version of Stephen King's The Stand. This one is called The End. Can you tell us, Sheila, who are the good people that brought us this version of The Stand? This was brought to us through all through CBS All Access. Uh, it was written by Benjamin Cavell and Josh Boone, and Josh Boone also directed it. All right. So the only thing that I know Josh Boone from, he he wrote and directed the New Mutants movie. Did you happen to see the New Mutants movie? I I did not. (laughs) That movie was done like two years ago. So if you watch it and you see Maisie Williams in it, you're like, what happened? Because she looks (laughs) like the kid version of herself again. Right. What happened was it got caught up in the Disney buyout of Fox. Oh, yes. And it conflicted with everything. And <laughs> yeah. And so when the buyout happened, then um, they just kind of let it sit. And there were all these talks of some reshoots and stuff, and they never happened. And in a way, the pandemic provided Disney the perfect way to dump it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So they did. Right. And, and it looks as much like, did. yeah, right. I mean, a lot of dumped movies, I think, came out during the quarantine season. But it looks like a superhero movie where they were told to spend as little money as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Josh Boone. Well, at least yeah. it looks like they're giving him a bit of a budget for this. For sure. Especially with the acting talent and the diversity of the uh, sets and stuff just seen in this first episode. This looks probably like this one episode exceeded what they gave him to, to work on the movie. For the entire movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So what did you think overall? Did you like what you saw? I really did. I really, I really liked what I saw. I like the casting. I like who they've put in the different places. I like the scenes that they set up. I like how they've orchestrated it. I really was in for this episode. I did watch it twice just to reacclimate myself to the story. Uh, I read this, I read the book and like, I feel like I was like a junior or a senior in high school. Okay. Um, so it's been a while, but it's one of those books that stays with you. I read it actually not long after the miniseries came out back in 94. So I must've been a junior in high school. And yeah, it's just one of these stories that, again, I'm not like a big Stephen King. I don't like the horror stuff, but given the backdrop of 2020, (laughs) I think this is his scariest work ever. What? Yeah, it is kind of fortuitous timing to release, to have scheduled this and made it prior to knowing what 2020 was going to be. Yeah. Uh, Right when the pandemic hit, I actually audibled and listened to the stand again. And it was, it was kind of surreal having to live through the the hacking and, and choking and coughing symptoms of the people getting sick. Yeah. Because people were actually living through that in real life. But I soldiered on and listened to the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, same, same. I just kept going on. I was like, well, because, you know, Stephen King very early on too into the 2020 pandemic that we've been living through was like, this is not the stand. Right. You know, you know he was very explicit in saying that what's going on now is not what was told in the stand. 
Um, so he was definitely drawing the parallels away from his work, saying that, you know, coronavirus is very survivable, whereas, you know, Captain Trips is near fatal. He definitely wanted to shoo that uh, that notion <laughs> away from uh, from his story. So, but there were very striking similarities between what happened and what we're going through now. So, uh, there's definitely a lot of corollaries. The version that you read in high school might have been different than the version that you listened to because he had a chance to re-release the book. And depending on when you read the book, you might have read the original version that had been cut. I think it was the, it was the big tome. It was big. And I think it was the adapted version that he was able to rewrite. Okay. So in that version was some of the elements that came through in this, which was the, if I, if I remember correctly, it was stuff like the hearing more about the state of the world through things like the radio and the media and that kind of stuff. Did you notice those bits as they were like playing in the background, like getting a fuller sense of how bad things are? Yes. Yeah, definitely. That was the version that I read. And you, you and they bring some of that in here definitely very well. Yeah, there's some of that. If I remember from the book, there's some crazy shit <laughs> 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 that, that happens, like real crazy stuff, you know, um, people just executing other people because there's like there's just no hope. So you might as well and then go crazy. That, that yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the cast. Cause we mentioned in the preview, we mentioned just now that we think the cast is great. Let's start with Stu in the casting of James Marsden. Whenever I see him, I think Cyclops. <laughs> do, you, do you have a favorite role for James? Um, I, believe it or not, I loved him in Hairspray. <laughs> Hairspray. Oh my goodness. That's one of uh, Caroline's favorite movies. It just, it was just such a happy go lucky kind of a movie. And it's just, I was just surprised that he was able to do all that. So um, it just sticks out for me. No, he's a talented actor. It's that it's, and dead to me. It, it is, it's unfair actually that a man gets to be, you know, handsome and sing and dance and act and, and it, it, it's I'm not complaining <laughs> although i don't think we're gonna get much singing and dancing out of Stu redmond out of this one nah that would be off uh, yeah kind of out of character out of place yeah yeah i mean for me not a lot of the miniseries uh from um the 90s i want to be retained but one thing that is stuck in my mind that is gary sinise's version of stew as just almost like an atticus finch type stand-up guy mm -hmm. and that was something that was in the book but gary just i mean nailed it and so far what i've seen of james it's not like he's copying gary i'm not saying that i'm saying he's also brought that unshakable truth justice in the american way <laughs> kind of yeah way. he really did but without being cheesy you know right exactly yeah. like he's just a stand-up guy and all that a natural leader also in this episode we met let's see owen teague he plays harold louder 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 i've heard it both ways in the book based on his, he says louder i think what did you think of him call me crazy i get a very stephen king vibe from him hmm i don't know he's not how he acts but just how he looks like he almost has like a very young stephen king feel to me i think i could see that not with the hair so much but with the, <laughs> oh, the face of how he holds his face how he poises himself um yeah. 
uh, that was one of the more striking, especially when he goes a little off the rails towards the end of the, the episode. Um, I was getting just a very intense kind of Stephen King kind of feel from him. I liked him as how, that he's how I pictured Harold. So. Yeah. It, he, we spend a lot of time with that character in this episode, but it's since you have to split that between flashbacks, flash forwards, Stu's time, Franny's time, etc. You don't get a lot of time with any one character, but you got enough with Harold to know that he is some kind of path, a sociopath, a psychopath. Yeah, he's, got, he's, he's got a path. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we just got to figure out the, uh, the prefix. Right. They actually showed us enough, given the kind of the time hopping style that they adopted, to make me wonder if they've changed the role that he's going to play in, in the narrative, if they've changed from the book. I don't want to spill it for anybody that hasn't read the book yet, but do you get what I'm saying? Like, do you, do you think that they might change how he ends up? I'm not sure. I definitely feel so far, well, so much with the, the flashbacks to the five months prior to you know, where the present day is kind of taking place. He's very much hewing closely to his character in the book. He's kind of repulsive. He's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of nasty and awkward. So it'll be interesting to see where they take him, but it doesn't feel the more the present day Harold feels a little mature, I guess. Okay, I think I see what you're saying. It's like they're they're sort of the boyish, you know, the same the kind of guy that's looking through the the fence, peeping holes, you know, pe- yeah. looking through the peephole. Somewhere between then and five months later, he grows up to the point where he's obviously he knows that he needs to squash down his true self in order to get along with these people because he has this other plan in mind. Mm-hmm. Even they even allude to that, that he. Right. I was going to say that they did. They bring in elements of that as the moments of the show are closing out this episode anyway. Yes, for sure. Uh, We also met the new Franny. She's played by Odessa Young. I like her. Again, comparing her to Molly Ringwald, this characterization of Franny is different than what Molly did. Molly mm-hmm. had sort of this 80s teeny bopper sort of feel like, oh, I just happened to be pregnant. Oh, good. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whereas this was a much more angsty take on Franny. Mm-hmm. Almost skewing her younger even than okay. how young she is. Like she just didn't feel like, was she like 20 or so in the book? Probably. Yeah. yeah. I didn't quite get that from her from this. I don't know. But it's not a bad thing. And the And the elements of the situation you know everyone dying around her parents dying and that seems to have gotten to her at a more core level than it did in in the in the previous version that is frankly probably more believable that she'd be you know with the pills and and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff that's a believable take and this actress odessa young i don't know her she's from australia so some of her work uh stems from from where she comes from and that would probably explain why i've never seen her before but she's pulling it off i like the fact that they brought in somebody rather who's relatively unknown to us because in 94 everybody knew who molly ringwald was <laughs> like and she'd already been pigeonholed into so many like john hughes teeny bopper kind of movie roles that it was hard for her to break out of that mold yeah that might be the thing it might be that i have so much you know breakfast club pretty in pink uh baggage <laughs> yeah that i can't Maybe she was angsty, but to me, she, you know, she, she was still uh, who she's always been. Right. We got a glimpse, a glimpse of Whoopi Goldberg as Mother Abigail. 
Did you pick up on the slight change of venue for Hemingford home? For Colorado, yeah. Yes. Sports Not fans, Nebraska. it was in Nebraska in the book. But if you think about condensing the story, which they've already done a significant amount doing is just in this first episode the idea of taking the band (laughs) (laughs) right the band on the road (laughs) right to eventually to boulder which that's no spoiler they showed us that was the first scene of the movie or the opening scene right so that's where they want to go then a pit stop in nebraska would make sense for some but not for all So meanwhile, stopping at some other fictional town in Colorado, that makes more sense. They needed to condense this down. There was no way you could go page for page. Right. It's over over a thousand pages. (laughs) (laughs) Even Stephen King in the, so when I was listening to the audio version, I listened to the introduction, he was saying, you know, that he, he'd taken some liberties and he goes, you know, some people say it's, you know, grandiose or whatever it was that he said that he was indulged, Mm -hmm. uh, allowed to be indulged. But, you know, I guess he'd sold how many tens of millions of copies of books that they were like, sure, you want to rewrite the stand? Go for it. Well, that's the stage he's at is, yeah. is, is that point in his and career. And that was in 1990 that he was able to do that. So right, I mean, we're exactly. talking 20 years removed from that. Yeah. Did I that... say 20? I'm in 30. Whew. <laughs> I do that too. Like high school wasn't that long ago, was yeah. it? Yeah, really. But yeah, so he was able to rewrite this then. So imagine, you know, what he would be allowed to do now. But no, they had to definitely condense some parts. And it, it made it made sense just to have them journey to the place that they needed to as opposed to the, the pit stop. Yeah, like a a good example, I think, is, you know, the original miniseries, it started with a musical sequence uh, of the virus escaping the the research facility and then ending up uh, with Stu and his friends playing poker at that gas station, right? Right. That whole bit maybe takes like 10 minutes to to play out from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And this, they break it up. And they do the gas station thing as a flashback, and it's, I don't know, like a minute and a half, two minutes or something, and they've explained the whole it thing. It was really, really condensed. Yeah. I mean, the book alone took forever to get to that scene and just read you know, how it was drawn out. The details of it, this was, it was quick, but they showed you what they needed to see. Yeah, that's a good example. In the book, we have to live through the various friends and family being abducted from their homes in Arnett, Texas, right. uh, and learning all their names and, you know... The who their story. first grade teachers were. <laughs> and, See, I condense everything, their backstory. <laughs> right. And here we get just like, how many of them are dead? Well, one's still alive. But are the rest dead? Yes. <laughs> we don't need to know much more right. than that. I mean, that's pretty dead. catastrophic news that sums up the state of things. So my first viewing of the episode, I was actually kind of let down by the the car at the the gas station pump that with Campion. That whole scene, I was like, I wanted the big fanfare that I was expecting. And on second watching, I was like, no, I appreciate how succinct they were in in coming up with the scene the way that they did it. So I'm not sure how people who just watch this kind of the one time are expecting something bigger. Like you said, in the 94 miniseries, there was a lot of time spent with it. In the book, there's a lot of time spent with that scene. So it'll be interesting to see what the reactions of people are. I don't know. What was your take on that scene? Not let down. It's more like I agree with what you're driving at, which is that this writing team, this producing team, has decided to approach the story in a chopped up time jumping instead of like a linear, you know, A to B to C kind of storytelling. 
And will that work? I think it might because so many stories that we have seen on TV in the last 15 years have used a frame like this in order to tell their stories like Lost or even Mm -hmm. This Is Us, which is a, you know, nothing supernatural about This Is Us, but they still use that kind of back and forward storytelling like that. And everyone seems to get it, or at least most people seem to get it as a person. Right, like we've been conditioned to to accept this as a storytelling. And I think that's maybe where I was coming at it from is that I, I expected something bigger, but I appreciate the fact that they need to, to pare this down because it's only a few episodes and it's a big story and it takes a long time to get through the end of it. And there's still so many characters to meet. I was, yes. I mean, I was reading off the character names and actors of the actors that we've met so far, but that means I still had to skip over Larry Underwood, uh, mm-hmm. Nadine Cross, Tom Cullen, Julie Lowry. Let's see. Uh, no, no, Nick, Nick Andros. Yeah. Nick Andros. Yeah. And these are all major characters that take, you know, lots of pages in the book. And some of them are fairly high profile. Um, Amber Heard plays Nadine. I know no one likes her, but she's still famous. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's a little ju- controversial at the moment, but yeah, she's kind of a hot button uh, subject. But her, her, uh, her, I'm interested to see what she'll do with that that character. Again, if you haven't read the book, I don't spoil anything, but she's crazy. Um, <laughs> so they cast that well. <laughs> <laughs> And with uh, Larry Underwood, it was never really spelled out that he was one color or another, or uh, ethnicity, shall we say. Right. In, 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 but they've made him black in uh, this telling, and they've cast a fine actor in Jovan Adepo. I know him from The Leftovers. Uh, he was in the second and third season of that TV show. And um, he's just a really good actor, and he'll be playing Larry Underwood, who, if you recall from the book, was the, the singer. Yes. I don't know if he sings. <laughs> I think we're going to find out. I'm sure we'll out. find out. I'm sure, I'm sure in some way, shape, or form, we'll, we'll get something from him. Yes, yes. So many other characters. Nick Andros being played by Henry Zaga. I don't know Henry. I don't know him. He was also in The New Mutants. He was also in 13 Reasons Why. So I'm sure I've seen him. I just don't. His face looks familiar, but I couldn't pick him out of something if you'd asked me yeah. point blank. I'm afraid, but but uh, I'm sure he'll do great. There's Greg Kinnear as well. He plays Glenn. Wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> and Heather Graham as Rita Blakemore. This is a deep bench, Paul. Greg Kinnear's playing the old guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg Kinnear is, not that saying Greg Kinnear's old, but he's definitely not, you know. Like, wow. He's not like, you know, what he was in uh, Sabrina from 95 or anything like that. That's right. So there's just so many great characters to meet. We're only one episode in. We've only met a a handful. Man, there's so much ground to cover. Why don't we talk about what happened in this episode? Okay. Like you mentioned, there's a modern or current timeline, which is the Boulder cleanup crew. (laughs) Could you not smell what they were smelling along with them? It was very graphically done, I think. Every chance they've gotten to show us that the smell is real. Mm. <laughs> they've Has the, been taken. Yes, yes, the actors have really driven it home that mm. that this version of Earth is a smelly place. Yes. A breath of fresh air is a hard thing to come by. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was a little concerned only because I have been covering TV long enough to know that some people do not watch TV with the same scrutiny 
that I do. And, and so <laughs> surely you jest, you mean, you don't watch with captions, you watch things three times, <laughs> right? I mean, who, who doesn't everybody. And so having gone through that, I know that people just don't catch things and yeah, they, they yeah. And, and so when you, when you show pregnant Franny hanging around with Stu mm. in the current I, timeline, yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if people are going to be like WTF, what's happening? Is that Stu's baby? Dumb questions like that. <laughs> and, I, yeah. I mean, people are going to definitely not, if they haven't read the book, don't know the the prior history, they're definitely going to think that that's his baby. Let me outline it for people that, that are like iffy. Uh, there's a moment when she's eating pie in her house yeah. and the camera. That's what I wrote down in my notes too. I was like, that's, that's the clue people. <laughs> the camera lingers on her flat teenage stomach for just a second. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what told you she's prego. That's all you got. <laughs> and and the moment where she says, Dad, I want to talk to you about something. Oh, okay. It can wait till later. Exactly. There you go. That's it. Those two things together told That's us it. that that is it. And so I was just a little concerned as someone who doesn't want to leave any watcher behind um, right. that we're going to confuse some people, but hopefully they'll listen to this podcast and, and just be right along with us. Oh, thank you, Sheila and Paul, for clearing that up for us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I mean, I also think, I mean, as someone who's been pregnant, that be like, there's no way in five months she'd be that big. So <laughs> depends on how closely people are watching. But I mean, you know, half the time I'm watching TV and I'm scrolling on my phone. Well, yeah, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. This depends on the show. Depends, yeah. uh, yes, depends on the show. Yes, 100%. I guess the other little bit that we can mention as smarties who read the book is to point out that some of the people are dreaming of cornfields. Yes. Meanwhile, Harold is dreaming of neon signs. Las Vegas is what pops into my head. I think that's fair. I think that's a really fair assessment, Sheila, to call that Las Vegas. The girly and the neon sign. And I think you're onto something. I think so too. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. All right. So the bulk the of the past, show, the path that leads, you know, he's, everyone else is dreaming in the daylight too. And he's dreaming in the dark. Oh, I didn't catch that, but yeah, good. Good call. Dark versus yeah. light. That is a super duper theme with how things shake out sure. <laughs> with, with the book. But the bulk of the story takes place in starting five months prior to what's happening in Boulder. Like we mentioned, we follow basically a group in Maine, in Agunquit, Maine. Mm-hmm. That is Harold and Franny. I think the relationship that we're supposed to get there is Franny's just a little older than Harold. And he, she was friends with Harold's sister. She used to babysit him at some point and he developed a crush upon her. I'm going to go up with obsession. That's fair. Only because of the picture later on. Yeah. In his bedroom. And just the well-oiled spot on the um on the fence where he was staring at her. He definitely Right. He knew exactly fire. where to go. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't yeah, he, searching for his hole. <laughs> right. And you know <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that took me a little surprise. <laughs> you went there, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, so he's definitely got uh, a majorly crush on Franny, I think. And we're also supposed to understand that he is a writer, but not a good one. Yeah, I was going to say of some sort. Yes, an oft-rejected writer. Yes. 
that is uh, something that if you don't follow Stephen King's work at all, then you might not know that, boy, four times out of five, his protagonist is a writer. So it's unusual that that he would have a writer, but is not the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want to spill any beans, but Harold's not the protagonist. <laughs> he's just there to stir up some stuff. Yeah, well, he's necessary, you know, at this stage in the story, even though we have some conflicting uh, views, I guess, of, of what he's what his ultimate goals are for Franny. He did need to be there to get her out of the tub, get her on the scooter, get them out of Maine. All that stuff needed to happen, and Harold needed to be the guy to do it, apparently. Right. He was the uh, the journey starter for the Maine crowd. M-A-N-M-A-I-N-E. Right. And when you when you when you look at enough stories, that's an that's an interesting way to take it. Usually there the call to action isn't provided exactly by this kind of figure usually it's the obi-wan kenobi (laughs) right it's not right it's more noble right it's not the obsessive creep (laughs) yeah really that's that is fair paul (laughs) spun that trope on its ear yes but Um, that's a fresh take you know it is it is what else do we have going on Lots of bad stuff. This is the time frame when everyone's dying all around them. Lots of coughing and sneezing and stuff like that. This particular illness, in some places they call it the super flu, which I always preferred to Captain Trips. I really never liked Captain Trips. I don't know why. It just it felt, I don't know, trite, I guess. Yeah, it sounded too silly for what it did. Yeah. Like Captain Trips, I'd be like Captain Drips or something would be better than Trips. I don't know. But what it does is it does something to your neck and it causes it to kind of bloat up and make it so that you can't breathe anymore. And yeah, basically, and it's filled with snot. Something. Yeah. Goo. Uh, it's goo. Let's put, let's, yeah. it's green goo. Goo's good enough. Yeah. You don't want it. it. You don't want it. And you, if you get it, ain't no coming back from it. That's the thing. No one recovers from it. You're either born with the immunity or that's it. And there's no rhyme or reason as to who was chosen to live there's no pattern of uh say genetic traits or anything like that so far we haven't seen any family lines survive it's just a luck of the draw kind of of the draw for immunity yeah yeah did you notice in a gun quit when harold steals the the cop's gun Mm -hmm. that the cop had crashed into dairy and son's antiques yeah so it was an antique store yeah dairy of course is Stephen King's made-up town where yes. so many of his adventures take place, including mm-hmm. it and others. So that's their, I guess, their Easter egg for yes. King fans. Uh, there might have been more, but that's the one I saw. Right. The homage to Stephen King starting out. Yeah. And the fact that it was a, an antique store. I mean, I've been up that way and there's you know thousands of antique stores but also antique stores have figured into so many king stories like needful mm-hmm. things or salem's lot they just maybe it's just because they're so common but they're also kind of creepy too <laughs> yeah there is definitely a creep factor right a dead person used to own this oh. right exactly that's why i was kind of hate estate sales and things like that too because <laughs> <laughs> i found this uh this book at an estate sale that I gave to my brother-in-law because he's uh, he's Italian. And uh, this book was called something like a manual of how to be Italian in America or something like that. And it was blatantly, I mean, I don't know how 
how racism works amongst European cultures, but it's kind of that way, you know? Uh, I'm married to an Italian, so <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was like how to conduct yourself in public or something. It's like, first, cast your eyes downward. And if anyone should see your eyes, make sure they conduct a sense of immeasurable suffering. Or you... <laughs> 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 it's, it's, it's just thing. It's just kind of page after page of, you know, just stereotyped trash like that. But it's hilarious. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. And he got a kick out of it. So he, he took it with it, the spirit with which it was given. Even within like the Italian culture, like there's definitely like the Sicilian versus the mainland, you mm -hmm, know, right, sort yeah. of the way that the mainlanders kind of look down on Sicilian. So, yeah, there's plenty of that going around, even within intra-culture. That's helpful. That's that really helps keep everybody united. <laughs> and, and, and even I'm sorry, I just feel like if you're you know making fun of your own people, you're good. That's OK. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. It's, it's, it doesn't give you it doesn't give you a card to like make fun of other people. But, no, you know. no, that's but bad. At least you can see the humor within your own stereotypes is you know, sign of a good sense of humor, I guess. It works for me. <laughs> Same All right. Here. So is there anything else we want to cover about Harold and Franny in Maine? No, I think that was pretty much <laughs> although Franny's face when she realized that Harold's the only other person alive in a gun quit is just like good call why did it have to be you when he's walking down the road and goes anyone alive because she's considering not saying anything right and then she thinks the better of it because she's got the lone ranger to think of too but she only lasts about three minutes in his presence before she's like uh, yeah. <laughs> well i mean fair enough i mean he was being fairly insensitive like for instance when they go to leave maine and he writes the message on the side of the building, right? Yeah. He's just like packing up his shit. And he's like, I didn't know your name or your middle name. Your middle name. Yeah. She's right there. You could have asked. Right. She's watching you spray paint this nonsense <laughs> 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 on the side of the antique store. I think it was. But I think that's the point. He could have asked and he didn't. Because did. she is a thing, a possession, a not, not worth asking. A trophy for him. Right. To him. That's how he understands her. And for now, he... She, in his mind, he has her, and that's good enough. Yeah, that's all he needs right now. Gross guy. Icky guy. Yeah, yeah. He's just... Ugh. Anything else? No. On Franny and, and Harold, no. Our other protagonist that we see the story of is Stu Redman. Gotta admit, out of all of the Stephen King books that I have read, Stu is one of my top heroes just sort of the just sort of this everyman guy that like many king heroes he does not have the tools he needs to do what's being asked of him but he does it anyway he's a real stand-up guy and i agree i think he's one of the the better heroes that stephen king has and maybe it's just my non-complexity as a person <laughs> shining through that I would find a value in a in a pretty straightforward hero like this like if he secretly, you know, tortures animals or something like that, like, I don't want to know it. I want to keep him nice and cut and dry. Pristine. Yeah. Keep him pristine for us. Jeans, white t-shirt. That's who I need. <laughs> yes, exactly. Maybe a baseball cap, which we meet him in, you know? Right. Just that's my Stu Redman. That's all I need. Keep him clean cut. Keep him on the straight and narrow. We're good. Because there's so much else in this story to complicate things. I think maybe that's why you need Stu to be this like I said, Atticus Finch, like this, just like, he's not going to falter. He's going to, 
he's going to, what he says he's going to do, he's going to do. He's, it's that kind of, and what, what it is that he's going to say that he's going to do is the right thing. Right. He's like a lightning rod for leadership, for the right thing to do, the morality of the situation. So I think he's a, he's a good character to, to be introduced as early on as it is, because now you're starting to get a sense of who he is. Even from the, the car scene, when the gas station is destroyed with Campion, he's the one who's there first. He takes action. He pulls yeah. Camping out of the car. He gets enough information out of this guy in his dying moments to put, you know, a couple of things together. And you have enough to go on, dear viewer, in the in the five month forward time frame to understand that Harold is being sent off to do the, you know, the body duty. Meanwhile, Stu and Franny are off to do something else. And the way that he says something like everyone's got to pull their weight or, or something, whatever that line is. Yeah. Harold says like, we're all in this together. And, but you get the sense that Harold's doing something far more unpleasant than either Franny or Stu. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, they, they, they're, they're walking away from like the coffee cart and Harold's just come from, you know, some nausea inducing smell fest. What you can read from that probably is not that Stu would shirk working with his hands or labor or something. It's just that he's being asked to do something else. He's definitely got a different capacity than Harold, but they're sincere in their feelings towards Harold. You know, we appreciate what you're doing and the insincerity that is oozing out of Harold is just, it's so palpable. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> sure. That... <laughs> oh man. Stink that was one of the, that's one of those, um, we have to pick the path prefix before his, his, uh, diagnosis. Is he socio or is he psychotic? Because right, there's yeah. definitely an element in that scene where you're just like, what's going on with you? <laughs> this story, unlike the book, unlike the previous miniseries, picks up with him already at this research facility in Colleen. Colleen's a real place. It's just up the road from where I live. <laughs> oh, that's kind of cool and creepy all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And, but they do backfill the story. Yeah. The way that the doctor is so friendly and explains everything very matter of fact, not too much bullshit, but he's not going to say more than he's allowed to say, I think helps draw us, draw us into Stu's place in the world right then and help us develop this appreciation for this guy that after he gets what he wants, which is just to know where he stands, then he's willing to help. And again, that goes back to his stand-up character that we've already talked about. It's just reinforcing what we're saying. Meanwhile, in the book, you had to live through him being abducted and <laughs> being forced to perform the tests that now he says he doesn't want to perform until he talks to someone and then like going through all that. So just, just jumping in at that point is actually very much a blessing. <laughs> yes, it was very neatly. Like the, the prior 70 hours that uh, Dr. Ellis <laughs> talked about, we didn't have to live minute by minute through those 70 hours. So yes. um, it was neatly buttoned up in you know three days ago there was you know m4s in my face and mop suits and so you can infer dear listeners <laughs> <laughs> uh what went on in those prior 70 hours um yeah. but yeah he does he he acquiesces and he agrees once he's gotten information about his friends that's really what he wanted to find out and then he agrees to give as much blood as he can stand to help them figure out what the protections for him are that they could help other people it was neatly done. <laughs> right. And I hope it doesn't leave anybody scratching their heads. I think I, I think they, they're going to have enough 
especially given that they do fill in the flashback to the gas station and all that. Right. I think it's all there for you. And trust me, the stuff that's missing, it doesn't matter at this point. It's not integral. And they gave enough of, like uh, Dr. Ellis gave enough of a synopsis in order for us to figure out where we came from, from the time of the gas station. And then Harold's listening to the radio mm -hmm. also fills in some of that that gap for us, that Arnett was in complete lockdown, no no presser allowed in. There was an activity that happened in Arnett, and then we see it. So it was, a, it was a good segue, and it also helped to fill some of those knowledge gaps. I thought some of the way that the timing lined up was potentially confusing, but ultimately very compelling that we have we've been exposed to the idea that the world is completely falling apart lots of people are dead so many people are dead and we actually get a number very early on actually in that first scene oh the very first scene says seven billion seven billion people are dead so we're on our way to seven yeah. billion people being dead and somewhere in the middle of that toward kind of seems like past the middle of that we get a presidential address walking some of that shit back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that seems like accurate, doesn't it? <laughs> As the president's giving the address. <laughs> right. But that felt kind of real, didn't it? Especially given, I don't know, what we've just lived through. It's a little on the nose, isn't it? Yes. Like I'm, I'm hearkening back to some of the March and April briefings that we were getting every day where it's like, are we really getting the right information? Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, those mm. daily briefings abruptly stopped when there was too much criticism. So, um, yeah, it, 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 that, that's one of the parallels of 2020 that I was drawing, saying that as much as Stephen King is like, this is not about, you know, the same thing. And, but there are themes and allegories that we can pull out from this that we are experiencing. And that was one of them. Like, we're walking this back and we're changing the policy that we instated two days ago. And, and now the vaccines are here <laughs> and, and they'll be fine. <laughs> man, man. Yeah. That is, if you're listening to this sometime in the future, we are just days away from the vaccine hitting the first, the Pfizer vaccine yes. hitting the street. That's the world that we are living in, Sheila and I, today. Today, yeah. And I work in healthcare, so I'm really helping, hoping that they don't make me <laughs> push me to the front of the line. I'm like, I'm really Ooh. an accountant. I, I am are, not. I'm are not you important. in the uh, what are they? One B or one C group? I don't even know. I mean, they're not even talking about us necessarily as 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 viable candidates right now. Oh, it's okay. really versus doctors, phlebotomists, radiologists, um, all those ologists that mm -hmm. need to be. Um, I, I I literally I crunch numbers. I, I'm a data analyst, essentially. <laughs> like I, I, I've been working from home. I, I do work for a hospital system, but I, I've been working from home since March 12th. So it is December 13th. So I've been home nine months. <laughs> Maybe you're a numerologist. <laughs> <laughs> do you wear a funny hat? <laughs> um, only when it's cold out. <laughs> only when it's cold out. Well, get ready. Get that hat. And yeah, Wednesday, Wednesday, we're supposed to get our first big snowstorm. So yeah, we'll see. Oh, Stu, lots of shit goes down, but eventually his doctor dies and he has to kill this asshole named Cobb before he gets to meet J.K. Simmons. I like everything about General J.K. Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know J.K. was going to be in this. Right. Uh, and, you know, just in the the cast that we were even talking about, we just, we glossed right over him. He's an instantly credible, gravity-bearing kind of guy that f fits in his four-star general uniform. Shoes. Like, 
uh, he belongs and uh, sold that scene. I mean, I've watched enough of these end of the world, crazy shit going on kind of movies to see a lot of those last moment of the man standing his post and deciding to take his own life kind of thing to see all kinds of versions mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> of it. And I think JK stands up as what you'd hope like he, it's just hopeless and he's got nothing else to live for. And that's so just he reads, it. And he's going to read some poetry that his daughter gave him. I looked that up. Same. What I found was that it is uh, Yeats, which we knew. It is yes. a poem called The Second Coming. Yes. What did you find, Sheila? Saying that it was a, a poem written by W.B. Yeats. Irish poet, yay. <laughs> <laughs> and just the little excerpt that he wrote, that he was reading, was very, very much the world that they're living in. That the, I like how he put it. It's like, you know, how Yates put it, um, how it looks when the shit actually hits the fan. Mm. And I thought that was a very good synopsis of the poem. There's a little bit of context into what was going on in Yates' life when he wrote the poem. Mm-hmm. I am not anyone that understands poetry just like through, oh, same. through training or innately or, or anything like that. I, I, mean, I basically have to be led I'm a very, yes. Okay. I'm not, I'm not an abstract kind of a person. I'm much more of a literal person. Good. Then neither of us will make the other feel dumb. No. <laughs> so that's good. Terrific. Um, so let me just say two important things. The poem was written in 1919 in the aftermath of the First World War. And it's a allegorical, I guess, description of Europe following the, uh, the First World War. Kind of the shithole that it became mm-hmm. thanks to all the damage that had taken place right. but filling in trenches and burying the millions of dead yes but there's a second level and this is even a little more interesting let me make sure i get the right part here mm. the poem is also connected to the 1918 through 1919 flu pandemic i was gonna say that that was happening contemporary to the time that this was written in the weeks preceding yates writing of the poem His pregnant wife, Georgia, had caught the virus and was very close to death. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. And he had written this during her convalescence. Well, that makes it very clear that why it's so dark. And why it's appropriate and why they picked it (laughs) and everything. (laughs) And just the irony button of 2020, just, you know, just as an additional layer on top of that. I can't say with any uh, intelligence whether or not this scene took place in the book, but I don't think it did. I think when he gets out, he gets out, and there's no stopping at the Beth yeah, General's don't. room. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't remember it, so I don't think so. Yeah, but this is a good ad. Um, yeah, they're in charge of finding the cure. This is the last man standing. He can't really help. He's a general. He's not a doctor, but right. You know, this is his post. He got to be a general because of how seriously he takes his job, one might presume, and how good he is at it. And even he admits it's over. Um, it's uh, it's done. Right. This is the 11th hour. No one's coming. And that's when I think that helps paint <laughs> the mural with a black brush. <laughs> if it hadn't been done so before, it is now. Right. And then just as Stu is leaving the facility after leaving Starkey, you just see the carnage within the base itself. And this is meant to be a bunker safe from the world. Mm-hmm. And they're not even safe. Mm-mm. Yep. The, this was actually a very disconcerting conversation with Starkey and, and Stu. 
when he mentions that it, they held it together longer than the predictive models had held. Mm -hmm. And Stu talking about gaming the apocalypse, it was very much the feeling that this was engineered, thrown out, giving credence to the the origins of this disease. It was kind of like a hopeless moment for Stu. I felt it was just he's just like, well, well, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Now what? It was very well done, I thought, as well as being as much as disconcerting as it was, but also very much where our journey needs to start. Like they're at bottom now. Well, and Stu has seen, in comparison to, say, Franny and uh, Harold, who, yes, their town died, and that's bad, but that's just it. It was just just a, a random main town, whereas Stu was supposed, he was collected as mm. potentially the savior, but he needed, you know, this medical staff to do that, to make that happen, and they couldn't, and they were supposed to, if not the best, then they were at least the last. <laughs> the last best, right? <laughs> you know and they're all dead now and so so now in contrast he has seen the the hopelessness of the situation if he doesn't find others to get you know humanity going again because there's no one left to save whoever's still going to get sick if there is anybody left and like like we said this bunker was meant to be the safest place he was staying uh Stu was given the the vice president's suite that this was this bunker was meant to withstand like a 50 megaton bomb. So this was meant to be like the cutoff from the world. We're going to be safe here. And right. Even that wasn't safe. So, yeah, I think what they're alluding to there in case, I don't know, you're 10 years old and haven't heard these kind of rumors before, but, but <laughs> the federal <laughs> government has bunkers underground for continuity of the government. Should the worst happen, the worst happen. Yeah. They would take the, president, the vice president, the Congress and, and Senate and go hide them in these places. I guess, I think they're underneath Virginia and Maryland or something like that Yeah, and uh, keep them safe so that when it is safe to poke our heads back up, <laughs> that there's still a United States. Um, right. There's still a functioning government for whoever is left. If they put Stu in the vice president's pad that might tell us something <laughs> about that there, that there isn't a vice president to occupy. Yeah, said right. And things are moving fast enough that they haven't even gone through the steps of promoting the person who would become vice president in right. light of that. I, I assume there's a process for that. I know that there's a way that, that there's just no vice president, but I don't remember what all the rules are. Um, oh, like the Speaker of the House becomes the next person in line, and there's there's a whole that. line. Yeah, yes. there's a whole line of succession, and it, it becomes either president or vice president, depending on which office is the vacant one, and everybody kind of moves up. I remember like something odd, like um, Henry Kissinger. Uh, they had to do a congressional. There was a dispensation, like to say that he could be the Secretary of State because he's not a natural born U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, this in the event of the the line of succession coming to him, that it would skip over the Secretary of State. Because he's not oh. a natural born, right? He's he's not native born to the U.S. So, um, yeah, there's my history nerd coming out for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, this I mean, that's all how um, Ford. Yes, became president. Became yes. president because he was promoted to vice president when Agnew left. Yes, <laughs> that's a very nice way to put it. Just <laughs> just left. And then when Richard Nixon left, yeah. then he got notched up again. It's promotion. He like left two two offices ahead. So I think we can assume though that things are moving so quickly. I mean, if if this story starts five months prior, right, 
to the Boulder scene, mm-hmm. five months is not a long time. Nope. The world would be falling apart like day to day. Things would be very different from one day to the next. So many people would be dead that there's just no one left to even do the math to figure out who would you know, rise up to fill those missing ranks of bureaucrats and all that other stuff. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at. I think that's what we can safely assume if the VP's bunker is empty, it's because they don't know who to make VP. Or there's nobody left to be VP. Right. All that, any of that qualifies. I think the last interesting bit to talk about is the final thing that they showed us, which is Campion's flight from his post where he infects the world. Right. And uh, this is one of those scenes where if you were scrolling through your phone, you missed it. (laughs) Yeah, this was a lot happened in a very short amount of time. So you might want to go back to see if I'm lying or not. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, there's a moment where Campion is thinking of not fucking the world. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. He he has his moment. But the door, which is supposed to close... Stays open. Yes, exactly. It stays open for a second. Right. He hits that lockdown button and looks at his he's got enough time to look at his phone and notice that the door is still ajar. Yep. So since it's open, he decides to run and everybody dies. Yep. And that's when they show that someone's foot was caught yes. in the door, keeping yes, it open. It damaged the door. Yeah, that yeah, whose foot could be so strong that the that the door would damage itself trying to close on it. And the guy with that foot wouldn't be like, oh, my foot. (laughs) This is all someone's plan. Some tall Scandinavian looking guy, I think. Yes. He might be the one who might be strong enough to withstand that door. (laughs) He might. He just might. Can we talk about the introduction of him? Even though we don't actually get a really good view of him until he's with the baby in the back seat. Yes. The introduction of the stranger by Billy Joel with the whistle. For me, I was like, yes, that is amazing. <laughs> so it's it's a very haunting, when, when given in this context, it's a very haunting whistle. It's very lonely. Mm-hmm. And it, for, it was just, I, I was definitely here for that. That was amazing. I was like, that is the perfect song choice to introduce someone so sinister and someone so, oh, just dastardly. <laughs> the Randall Flagg character is someone who Stephen King has taken and borrowed for different books and just mm-hmm. sort of like repurposed him. Basically, yes. And he changes his name, but he might keep the same initials. So like in this, we'll know we'll come to know him as Randall Flagg. So he'll keep those initials in RF and mm-hmm. and and call him something else in another book. And he's just the black as black kind of yes. <laughs> kind of soul that he needs to do the evil stuff in that book. And he may not even be the main bad guy. He's just bad enough to do some stuff that no one else can do and then there to infuse the evil yes it's a fairly uncomplicated look at a villain as as uncomplicated as Stu is for a hero randall flag will be as uncomplicated as that as a villain it's just more like what's his freaking motivation what is it is it really to to kill everybody or what what's going on that is going to be 
how they're going to need to fill him out to make yeah, him like reconcile his his character yeah right you're right we only got a glimpse of him we he had some sort of magic creepy jelly bean um <laughs> he entices people to come to to vegas right. um he's got a very boyish smile as he's <laughs> cr yes. cradling your baby in the right. back seat yes. um creepy that you just, guy that you just passed him hitchhiking <laughs> exactly how how'd that happen I, I do like how, like, when Harold had his dream and it was very dark and, and the wolf brings him down the little cave path, you don't actually get to see Randall. You don't get to see his face, but you see the silhouette. You you, you know it's him. Yeah. Um, and then it's not until Campion, who's who unleashed this to the world, where you see this. And obviously you get to see him and you start to see how, like, this evil becomes personified. So uh, I thought it was a very well done way to... to introduce him in little snippets through throughout and then really this final scene you get to see how he was so integral in in helping campion you know like you said fuck the world <laughs> it's it's a it's the best way to introduce an all-powerful kind of villain really is to not just here he is it, it's it's to show us this build up right? right the evil jelly bean but not show us his face or show it just in shadows and that kind of stuff where you're not it's pretty clear that he's the one that set things off but you only get to see like his foot you only you only get to see this you only get to see that it's not like a twisting you know mustache <laughs> right he's not a bond villain right he's not yeah. there you know giving you his plan he's definitely in the shadows and just a very well done way to introduce him. And with the stranger with the whistle, I thought it was really, really good way to introduce him. Again, contrasting to the portrayal of uh, Randall Flagg in the 90s miniseries, who also whistled, mm -hmm. but it, again, it just, they didn't stitch it together with like a known song and with the soundtrack and with kind of the atmosphere, they just had a guy in a jean jacket walking down the road whistling and it just with his mullet and his acid wash jeans. Yes, exactly. And it, it wasn't as timelessly scary as I think that they were hoping for. Right. And Alexander Skarsgård just has like this timeless villain aspect to him that we've mentioned prior, but It'll be interesting to see where he goes with this. Is there anything you are or are not looking forward to in this new version of The Stand? I don't think there's anything I'm not looking for. I, I just, I want it to be a clear story for people who maybe don't know the story. For like prior, like you and I know the story. I just hope, like I had to watch it twice. I didn't have to watch it twice. I chose to watch it twice. But watching it the second time made things a lot clearer for me, especially with the timelines and and accepting the truncation of the storyline. I just hope that people are able to follow along without having the, the prior knowledge. And so far, I think they're off to a good start with that. I think they're right near that line of making it so compressed that you're going to lose people. I think they're really close because there is so much story there that if you leave out the wrong part, then it stops making sense. But I don't think they're there. I think they're just right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is a character that I hope they just leave out completely. Um, and I didn't see him in the credits, so hopefully they did. There's a character named The Kid who is in the book and I can't even figure out what he was doing there, really. I mean, I trust that Stephen King had him in there for a reason. Right. 
but yeah, he doesn't really do much for me. So yeah, he, the story doesn't revolve around him at all. The character that's with him doesn't really even need to be with that exact character in order to get from A to B. He's just, just kind of distracting and weird and profane and violent and stuff. And it's just, uh, I th- that will come anyway <laughs> without including the kid. So I don't know if the uh, yeah, kid's coming, I th- but I think they probably would have looked at him as somebody who could have easily been removed from the story. So they've already now truncated this so much that it, it saves us from a lot of details that the book is rich with and takes a couple of pages to get through some of these things. Uh, I, I have a feeling this the uh, this CBS writing team probably looked at the kid and they were like, yeah, he's going to get slashed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even I'm sure even in the 80s when the kid was written, people were like, this is weird. But now, I mean, there's just no... Like they modernized the story a little bit. You know, those cell phones and stuff like that for all and the good... social media, right. right. But, you know, there's so little... They mentioned that they turned the internet off at some point. So, so much for that. Who cares And that those things exist? They, they, as quickly as they existed, they don't exist anymore for, for all the impact that they're going to have on the story. But a character like the kid would be kind of an anachronism storytelling wise. So anyway, I hope he's gone. (laughs) <laughs> but I agree with the rest of the stuff. Nothing to me brought nothing to the, the original story. <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, but I agree with the rest of what you said, how the story just needs to be complete. There's a long running problem with a lot of Stephen King work, which is he draws you in with his characters and his dialogue. And then when he gets to the end, it's sort of like, da 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 and it's like over and and the ending doesn't leave you feeling particularly satisfied. Right, it's like anticlimactic. So even if they change what happened in the book, but they made a better ending, I'm okay with that. Well, I think that Stephen King has some of the writing credits for the later episodes. Oh, really? I believe so. That can be good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's kind of like George R. R. Martin getting involved in like Game of Thrones with uh, HBO, so. <laughs> it's, uh, hmm, we'll see. <laughs> yes, I'm optimistic. Me too. I, I always am going into these. I never go into a show expecting to hate it or wanting to find right. fault or anything like that. I, I hope in the several hundred podcasts that I've been on, I hope no one could accuse me of, of really going in and looking for problems. I, I yeah, mean, I think we just kind of stay away from things we don't like to cover. So That's fair. I mean, right? I, why would I? I mean, a couple of times I have finished shows that I didn't like. Yeah. One of them was a Stephen King show. But he had nothing to do with it. It was it was the mist. He had sold the rights a long time ago. He had nothing uh-huh. to do with the show. And it was, I just didn't like that take. <laughs> that take on it, right? Yeah. Anyhow, so yeah. So this will be a weekly show covering the span of the of the stand on CBS All Access. Hopefully, you stick with us every week as Sheila and I talk about the ins and outs and how it compares to the book or at least how we remember the book (laughs) and how it compares to the uh, miniseries as it applies but i don't think it's going to apply all that much you know moving forward just maybe characterization things here and there just to be like can you believe they did it that way that that's about (laughs) it Thank you so much for joining us. If you could head on over to Apple Podcasts to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, that would be appreciated, as well as if you could drop a five-star review for us, so that would help other people find this show a little bit easier. And it would just be appreciated. Thanks so much for listening. This is Paul. And this is Sheila. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. 
Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.